Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to JVL Perez. If you would grab your Bibles, uh, open up to Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 11. Uh, we're looking at uh, the parable of Jesus, the, probably the most famous parable of them all. Uh, we're looking at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. So uh, good morning and Merry Christmas, and I'm excited to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're in a series right now called Lighting the Way, about how uh, Jesus lights the way to the Father. And so with that in mind, it's only fitting that we read the parable of the prodigal son. With that in mind, friend, hear the word of the Lord to us. This is Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger." I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open in front of you to Luke 15. Uh, friends, let's pray. Father, we love you because you first loved us, younger brothers and older brothers alike. Father, would we see your love? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why do people love Jesus but not the church? Why do people love Jesus but not the church? Well, when Jesus was alive, you know, two groups of people really dominated the world at the time, right? There were sort of big sinners, and then there were sort of the big-time religious leaders. You know, the big-time sinners, which will be demonstrated by this half of the congregation, you guys, 
the big time sinners were tax collectors, prostitutes, Gentiles. You know, everybody, were, everybody knew they were sinful. They lived a wayward life. They lived in a far country. Uh, big time religious people, represented by this half of the congregation, you guys were experts in the Bible, experts in the law, externally very righteous, and tending towards being a Pharisee. The surprising thing, though, was that the big time sinners were the ones who came to Jesus in droves, while the big time religious people struggled to follow Jesus. In fact, each of the four Gospels, you know, the biographies of Jesus' life, they depict Jesus having constant conflict and struggles with the religious leaders of his time, which begs the question, what was it about Jesus that made people love him so much but also hate him? And why was it so surprising that sinners flocked to him but many religiously devout people couldn't stand him. Well, the parable of the prodigal son is perhaps Jesus' most famous parable. And friend, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that if you grasp what's going on in this parable, if you can grasp what Jesus came to preach, it will turn your life upside down. <laughs> or rather, instead of turning it upside down, what it will do is it will turn your life to rights for the first time. And that's genuinely true whether you are a big-time sinner. <laughs> Nobody, no woo-woos on that one? I, I know some of you. I can see your eyeballs. It's good news for you, but it's also good news for religiously devout people that struggle with resentment and prejudice and anger. You see, Jesus has a word to speak to all of us. And friends, here's the good news of the gospel. <laughs> what Jesus came to preach is quite honestly the best news that you have ever heard. So let's look at this parable, this you know, most famous parable. And the thing we need to study are just sort of three things. This is an outline of sorts, but it pretty much just follows the parable. First, we need to understand something about this younger brother. Then we need to understand something about this older brother. And then we need to understand the father. Uh, so, you know, we, we look at the, when we look at Luke 15, if you look down in the Bible in front of your lap, you know, as I said, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all biographies. They're all perspectives on the life of Jesus. But interestingly, Luke provides many parables, sort of earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. He provides more parables than other Gospel writers. In fact, Luke is the only Gospel writer to give us this parable, the parable of the prodigal son. So this is unique to Luke's Gospel. But before I go any further, we have to ask the question, is that title, the parable of the prodigal son, even the right title? So I don't want to scare you or anything, but when you look at your Bible, you see that little subtitle at the top where it says something like the parable of the prodigal son? Well, that's something that the church has added over time to sort of help us understand the outline of a book that wasn't originally written in the Bible. It didn't break down into chapters and verses and subtitles. Those are all things that just help us understand what section of the Bible we're in. So really, many commentators have pointed out throughout time that the problem with calling this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, is that it totally ignores whom? The older brother. And in fact, by the end of the parable, it's the older brothers that Jesus is speaking to. So you could quite honestly call this parable the parable of the two brothers. Or it could be, quite honestly, the parable of the loving father. You know, I'm leaning heavily on Tim Keller's wonderful book, 
the prodigal God, if you are still trying to find Christmas gifts for your relatives who are living off in a far country, I would encourage you to maybe consider sending this book to them. So who is this younger brother? Well, he's sort of the focal point of the story, right? He's the one that we understand most prominently. So what is it that this younger brother does? Well, we know him as the prodigal son. What does the word prodigal mean? Prodigal means extravagant and lavish. He lives recklessly. And you know what the word reckless means? It means you live as if there is not going to be a reckoning, right? You are using your credit card thinking the bill won't come due. Really? And so what does the younger brother do? Well, look in verse 11. The story begins, and Jesus said, there's a man who has two sons. And the younger of them, that's the younger brother, raise your hand if you're a younger sibling. Raise your hand if you're emotionally or spiritually the younger sibling, right? Raise your hand if you did some time in the far country of L.A. or Portland, or God forbid, Seattle, right? The younger brother says to his father, what? Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. You see, what we have to realize in this ancient culture is that all of a person's wealth and prestige, their reputation is tied up in their land, right? Their allotment of the land. And so what the younger brother does to his father is disrespectful at a level that you and I don't ever really fully grasp. Because what the younger brother says to his father is essentially, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. And not only is that deeply offensive for a child to tell their parent, why don't you just die and give me what is due me now? Not only is that painful, there's also a public humiliation at work. Because everyone in the town would know that this respectful father has now lost some of his property. And so not only is the younger son wanting to spend things recklessly, he's also deeply embarrassing, offending his father. He publicly disrespects them. And then where does the younger brother go? Where does the young son go off to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Portland, right? He goes to a far country. <laughs> he goes to New York City or to Miami. He brings his talent to South Beach, so to speak. He goes to a far country, right? For us, it would be like moving to the big city. And what does he do? He blows all of the inheritance. I mean, how many of us don't know a brother or a sister or a cousin who has done something similar? Or who among us hasn't done this ourselves? He blows all of his money on reckless living, thinking there will not be a reckoning. And then to heap sort of shame onto shamelessness, what he ends up doing is he takes the worst possible imaginable job for a Jewish man. What does he do? He ends up working with unclean pigs, and he feeds unclean animals. And then, of course, he realizes, you know, at some point when he hits rock bottom, that this is maybe not the way to live life to its fullest, that maybe the far country was more like a mirage than it was the realization of his dreams. And so what he does, if you look down at verse 17, as he begins to talk to himself. You see that verse 17? But when the younger son came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough food? But here I am perishing from hunger. And then in verse 18, you know what he does? He starts to practice his repentance speech. What do I have to say or do to get my father to accept me? And so he starts to practice this speech. Dad, 
I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. I've dishonored you, so maybe take me on as a lackey. Let me work for you, not as a son, but as a servant. But then the amazing thing, right, the turn, the beautiful story that makes this a timeless story is in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while this younger son was still a long way off, his father does what? His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. This is the repentance speech, right? This is his penance. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But notice he doesn't finish the speech because the father interrupts him. The father turns to his servants and says, bring quickly the best robe, the best robe. Put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You see, what's beautiful is the father is waiting for his son to return. Isn't it profound, though, that the father never goes off to the far country? Have you ever noticed that? The father never goes to the far country on a mission trip to redeem his son from a far country. Although he does wait expectantly for his son to return. And as soon as his son starts on the path of repentance, the father runs to him and embraces him. And what's so beautiful, again, in this ancient culture is it would have been incredibly humiliating for a respectful man to run. He would have had to gird up his loins. You ever heard that saying? He had to gird up his loins, wrap his robe around, and he would run, and he embraces this dirty, stinky, unclean son. And then before the son can even begin the penance speech, the father says, get my best robe and put it on him. You see, this is why many commentators and guys like Tim Keller call this story the story of the prodigal father. Because who's really extravagant? Who's really over the top? It's the father. He's the one who's over the top. Now, of course, for many of us, we say, what's the point of this parable? What is Jesus trying to get us to see? Well, what we need to see is that the son never actually had a relationship with his father that was based on love, right? What we know from the son in this story is that he actually, he hates his father. He wants him dead. And yet the father loves this son. You see, the thing that we need to understand in this story is the love of the father, you know, the point of this story, right, is not that we can sin however we want and God will forgive it, right? I mean, if, if you feel that way, <laughs> you know, you may be living in a far country, but if you feel like that's the point of this story, uh, what I would suggest to you, friend, is that you've fallen for the oldest trick in the book. You know, it's been said that all good theology starts in Genesis. And you know what the oldest trick of the book is? How does Satan trick Adam and Eve? He tells them that there's a far country that there is something exciting, that God is holding back on them. The Father, he doesn't want to give you your inheritance. He doesn't want to give you anything good. You know where real life is? Real life is in the far country. You want to be wise? Disobey the Father. It's the oldest trick in the book. It's this idea that fun is out there. It can't be here. So whatever you may be struggling with right now, 
Uh, friends, if you're struggling with a temptation that you know is wrong, uh, friends, whatever the sin is, the sin that you're hoping I don't mention right now, a uh, friend, what you are actually looking for in a far country is actually what it means to know your father. Now, several years ago, a uh, prominent Christian artist ruined his life. And uh, he wrote this, these words online. Uh, you know, he, he lived the life of the younger son. And uh, I, want, I want you to hear, this is, this is an email from the far country. He said, the truth is, I cheated. I betrayed the trust of my wife. I betrayed the trust of my family, my friends, and my community. And I betrayed the trust and support that many of you have entrusted me with for many, many years. Or more simply said, I was a fool. I believed lies, which led me to tell lies. You might be a man or woman reading this even now, finding yourself exactly where I was two years ago, seriously considering choices that could destroy your life, your family, and maybe yourself. If that's you, please listen to me. What you think you want, what you think you can have, is not real, and you'll lose real things pursuing it as an unfortunately and extremely reliable source. Please believe me. Uh, friends, if you feel the draw to a far country, friends, know that that is a mirage. And friends, if you are there now, can you see the Father on the path waiting for you to return? Now, friends, this is all well and good. And many of you know this already. This is simply the message of the gospel. God forgives repentant people. And he has lavish grace for those who turn to him. And it may be tempting to sort of, you know, sort of close the Bible right now and say that's the story of the parable of the prodigal son. But the problem is what? We're only about halfway through the parable. Because where Jesus ends the parable is not with a message to big-time sinners, come back to God and he will forgive you. Instead, Jesus turns his sight on religiously devout, morally upright people, and he challenges them to question whether or not they know their father. You see, because where the story goes next is not about the younger son, it's about the older son, the older brother. Raise your hand if you're an older sibling right now. You know what I'm talking about, these knucklehead younger siblings like me. So who is this older son? Look at verse 25. Now his older son, right? This could be called the parable of the two sons. What do we know about this older son? Well, to quote Mark Twain, uh, he was a good man in the worst sense of the term. This older brother is self-righteous. He doesn't know his own sin. He sees himself as righteous. And nobody really lives up to his standards, least of all, not his knucklehead little brother. And he is quite religiously judgmental. But like all of our families, he's actually much more like his brother than he realizes. You see, because like his little brother, the older brother also hates his father. Like his younger brother, he also publicly disrespects his father. And like his little brother, he also doesn't actually know and love his father. And we get all of this when we study what's 
it like in the way that he interacts with his father. You see, his father pleads with him multiple times to come join the celebration. But listen to how this older brother, this dutiful man, responds to his father. Look at verse 29. But he answered his father, look. And in the original text in Greek, that's not just like, behold, father. It's like, look, you. It's a very disrespectful way of speaking. He says, look, you, I've slaved for you for years. I've never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me anything that I wanted to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, I wonder who he's laying the moral culpability on in that phrase. When, you're, when this son of yours, who devoured your property with prostitutes, isn't that interesting? We don't actually know that that's how the younger brother spent his money, but it certainly seems to be what the older brother thinks his younger brother would do with the money. You killed the fattened calf for him. You see, the older brother doesn't want the father's company. You know what the older brother wants? He wants the father's possessions. Except, you see, the younger brother just asked for it now. He just said, well, give it to me now. The older brother, his plan was just to slave and work for his father's stuff all of his life and quietly resent him for it. I've slaved for you for everything, and you've never given me a fattened calf. When you read this story, you just have to wonder, you think the father sounds like the kind of guy who wouldn't give a calf to someone who asked him? Ask and you will receive, right? Well, the younger brother wanted this stuff now. The older brother's plan was to work and to slave for a lifetime, to earn it himself. So that makes us wonder again, if this is the most famous parable, what is it that Jesus is getting at in this story? Why does he add this part of the story? Uh, well, I guess what I'm suggesting to you to consider is that the sinners, right, the big-time sinners, right, we represent the prodigal son, but Jesus speaks to religiously devout, morally upright, slightly pretentious, kind of condescending, judgmental people, also kind of like me, as the older brother. And I think what Jesus is getting at is that there really are two paths in life, trying to find happiness and reward by self-discovery, living however you want, going to a far country, going to the wine tastings, right? And then there's the path of trying to find happiness and reward by being as moral and upright as you can be. You know, it's here at this crucial point in history that I really believe Jesus started to change the world. And this is why the message of the gospel continues to change the world and change hearts and minds even today. Because friends, what Jesus is getting at if you can see it, is Jesus is telling us that neither of those paths actually lead to a relationship with the Father. You see, there are actually two ways to avoid the Father. One way to avoid Father is to go to a far country. The other way to avoid the Father is to slave for him all of your life and never need his grace or forgiveness. Or so we can think. You know, Flannery O'Connor, anyone ever read any Flannery O'Connor, the great American Gothic novelist? She wrote these haunting words in her book, Wise Blood, and I think it gets at the heart of the older brother. 
O'Connor writes, there was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. You see, the younger brother avoided his father by living recklessly. That's easy to see. But the older brother avoided his father by being so extremely moral and upright and dutiful that he never thought that he needed forgiveness or grace. You know, it's funny to me when I, when I meet people, the people that worry me the most are not sinful people, are not people that know that they have screwed things up. You know who worries me the most? Are people who think they've never screwed up are people who think they don't need a savior because they are good people. They have the heart of the older brother. You see, this is why for many of us, it's not just, am I the prodigal son or am I the older brother? Unfortunately, our condition is complex and multifaceted because we are both. <laughs> we can struggle to trust in our righteousness, to think that we have earned things from God and we have proven ourselves willing to go to a far country. You see, friends, this is why I think Jesus in his parable is so profound because this really is the story of the two lost sons. You know, there's a, a famous painting of this parable. Um, you can see it right there. Anybody want to take a guess who painted that? Rembrandt. Very good. You're very smart. You're very astute. I'm very impressed. Mm -hmm. That was probably a dutiful oldest child who paid attention during school or looked at the screen. The, um, <laughs> this is The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. Uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful book by Henry Nowen, the priest uh, who wrote the, the book, The Return of the Prodigal. Anybody read that book by Henry Nowen? It's a wonderful book. I'd encourage any of you to read it. Uh, it's very short. Uh, Henry Nowen was a priest who uh, went and lived in a home for mentally disabled adults. Uh, to, oh, he was a priest. He also taught at Harvard and Yale. He left Harvard and Yale, lived with adults with disabilities. And while he lived in this home in, I think, Italy or somewhere in Europe, he came across a poster of this painting. And he said he would stare at it for hours. And eventually he went and saw the actual painting by Rembrandt. And he tells a hilarious story of like sitting on the floor in this Russian art gallery, getting yelled at by the guards because he just stared at this painting for four hours. And what captured him so much, and if you know Rembrandt, you'll know that he uses light and darkness very prominently, right? If you want to know what the painting is about, look where the light is shining in a Rembrandt, right? But we see in this painting, of course, we all, all of our eyes are drawn to the, the love of the father, right? This tender, heartbroken, thankful father, who has his hands and he's embracing his son. And we see the need for new shoes, right, for the, for the son who uh, has returned. But what many people often ignore is what? Who else is in the light in Rembrandt's painting? Well, if we see he's a man who has a beard like his father, we see a man who has an important hat, whatever that means, we see a man who's also wearing a red robe very similar to the father, and then he's holding what looks like a very strict staff representing perhaps moral rectitude. The expression of the father moves you to tears. Now, many commentators say that the man beating his breast is to remind us of the tax collector and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who beat his breast saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. 
The man beating his breast looks at the prodigal son and says, there am I. But what's the expression on the other man cloaked in red, looking down at the prodigal? Anger, judgment. You see, this is what makes this painting so profound. Rembrandt called it the return of the prodigal son, which it is. But he wanted you to remember that the gripping part of the story is actually the older brother and the younger brother and the father. Can you see what Jesus is doing in this parable? You see, the problem is that both brothers have their hearts set on things. The younger brother wanted fun, adventure. The older brother wants security and the assurance of his inheritance. Neither of them, though, quite gets their father, do they? You see, what Jesus has come to spread is not just another religion <laughs> with modified rules. You see, Jesus came and he preached something he called the gospel, the good news. Something entirely different that no one had ever heard before. It was neither the path of the younger brother, the path of sort of self-discovery, choose your own path, do your own thing, nor is it the path of the older brother, do the right thing and judge all the people who don't. You see, the gospel is not a free pass to live however we want, nor is it another set of rules through which you can earn a relationship or earn your way to heaven. You know, the earliest Romans, when they encountered Christianity, they didn't quite know what to call it. They didn't know if it was a religion or not, because they would say, well, where's your God? And they would say, where? He's everywhere. And they would say to the Christians, where's your temple? You know what the Christians would say? There is no temple. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And people would say, where are your sacrifices? And we would say, what? There is no sacrifice because God sent his son to be the ultimate sacrifice for sins. So if you're asking me for a sacrifice, my sacrifice is dying to the things that I want and living for him alone. You see, what the Romans called Christianity is they called it a tertium quid, something else entirely, a third way. Neither the path of the younger brother nor the path of the older brother, but something else entirely. You see, the way to understand the story of the prodigal son is to understand the father. He completely restores the younger brother. He doesn't let him finish the apology speech. Friends, even our best repentance doesn't really earn anything. He calls to the older brother, and he loves his son just as deeply, even the disrespectful, dutiful one. Even after being insulted by the older brother, the father never once says, get out of here, you ingrate. Instead, the story ends with the father pleading for the older brother to join the party. And then he promises the older brother, as publicly disrespectful as he was, he promises him, everything that I have is yours. You see, friends, what the gospel tells us is that neither our repentance nor our good works earns us a relationship with the father. You know, to quote from the New Testament, uh, the book of Titus says these words, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, 
led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. <laughs> there's the older, or there's the younger sibling. And we spent our days hated by others and hating one another. There's the older brother. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the good deeds which we had done, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, friends, what the message of the gospel is, is that God has come to forgive us and to reconcile us, younger brothers and older brothers alike. You know, for the father in this story, forgiving his sons came at a very high price. He had to forgive years of rejection from his son. Anybody take rejection well? It was totally degrading for the father to run. It was scandalous for him to restore his son to full rights. And it cost the father a loss of his reputation and dignity. But it was also a loss of honor for the father to have to come publicly out and to plead with his own oldest son to come enjoy his feast. Uh, but friends, the cost of the father for forgiveness is the message of Christianity. God offers us grace upon grace, which we cannot earn. But offering such grace and forgiveness always comes at a great price. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has come and he has paid the price. Earning our forgiveness, earning our place back in the Father's house, cost Jesus everything that he had. Jesus would have to endure ridicule, rejection, betrayal, abandonment by his closest friends. Jesus was put on trial, falsely accused, beaten, whipped, and then crucified alongside criminals. This was the cost that Jesus paid to atone for our sins and to ensure that when we walked back down the path to the Father, the Father would not hold any of our sins against us. Friends, this is the gospel. And this is what the Old Testament prophets foresaw. As Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. Friends, I hope you see that the gospel is not just the story of two lost sons. The gospel is the story of the son, full of grace and truth, pleading for his lost brothers to come back to the father for the first time. Friends, why did people love Jesus but not the church? It may be because they've never heard the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you that you are on a mission to seek and to save the lost. Oh, Father, for those of us who are in a far country, would we see the Father waiting for us to return? Oh, Lord, would we know that the pods are sour? And Lord, for those of us who struggle with self-righteousness, to be like the older brother, Father, would we see your heart and know that we are saved by grace and grace alone? And Father, even now, by your Holy Spirit, would you be calling people back home to you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.